Are you ready for an interview with creative people too? Carolina. It's Carolina Stories. All right, giddy up. Welcome to Carolina Stories, where I sit down with high performers to try to grow and improve in my own life. It's a real-time snapshot of my current curiosities and focus areas. Thanks for joining me in the learning process. Today's guest is Glenn Kacher, the founder and chief investment officer of Light Street Capital. Light Street has over $2 billion of aggregate assets under management, and the flagship long-short fund has returned over 17% annualized since inception in 2010. Before starting Light Street, Glenn worked at Integral Capital Partners and Tiger Management, investing in technology companies. As always, nothing said today should be considered investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. With that, let's dig in. So given the podcast is called Carolina Stories, I want to start with Julian Robertson. Uh, so you joined Tiger in 93 out of undergrad. What are some of the lessons you learned from that experience, Glenn? Well, um, I'd say Julian definitely was you know, interested in uh, investing in companies where there was real secular change occurring in the industry and preferably on the long side that co- the company you're investing in would sort of be setting, setting the agenda in uh, the industry. So that was one thing. Um, I think, you know, there were a bunch of lessons. I mean, Julian always said, look, go out there, find the smartest people in the industry, get to know them, understand their point of view. And, um, you know, that's, that's how we're going to get an edge on, on other people. He always boiled investing down to a very simple, a couple of very simple maxims, which is on the long side, we're trying to invest in the best companies in the world, the best handful of companies in the world. And on the short side, we're trying to find the worst. And, you know, that's, you know, I've expanded on that, you know, very simple maxim that, that Julian threw out there. Uh, many years ago and, and, and modified it a little bit for tech uh, in that a lot of times that, you know, especially on the short side, it's not that the company is bad. You know, that's great if that's the case, but sometimes in the technology industry, a company's unable to uh, develop a new technology or even more frequently the business model that their new uh, upstart competitor is using is somehow just really difficult for the incumbent to adopt. So if a new company comes along with cheaper, faster technology and can offer something that the older uh, incumbent used to charge for and is a major part of their profitability, that's something that, uh, that, that you know, no matter how good management is, they're really, it's really difficult to, for the company to execute its way out of a situation like that. So, you know, I'd say those are some of the basics. I mean, I, a lot, I learned a lot of really incredible lessons from Julian in terms of just how to conduct yourself, making sure that you only partner up with people that are super ethical, don't compromise on ethics in any way. And, you know, a lot of uh, just sort of general, just watching him run Tiger and, you know, the, the, seeing how he processed information and decisions about really running the business those were invaluable lessons that maybe are a little bit hard to explain, but having been in the room, so to speak, when uh, some of those really important decisions were uh, being made and he was explaining them to the group, not that I was making them because I was a pretty young guy, but um, it it was just invaluable to really understand how he uh, was thinking about issues to growing Tiger. 
Absolutely. And yeah, in my opinion, one of the legacies of Tiger is just the number of world-class investors who grew up there. Uh, I mean, the Tiger Cubs are akin to the PayPal mafia in a sense. I mean, was there anything special that you can point to about either the hiring process or the environment or maybe talent development that allowed for this? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's been pretty amazing to see the, the, the level of success that so many Tiger alums have had in the hedge fund industry. It has made me think uh, and watch other industries and sort of how they work. And the one that I always come back to is the head football coach methodology where, you know, there are family trees of, of head coaches of football teams. And, you know, these are very uh, football is, you know, a very complex uh, set of systems and knowledge that gets built year after year, week after week, if you listen to the, the lore on Belichick. And I think the hedge fund industry has proven that some of those lessons and ways of doing things are, are passed down. It's essentially more of an apprentice kind of model. It's not something you can read in a textbook. So I think specifically to Tiger, I think Julian always really valued the uh, recruiting exercise in terms of really carefully uh, evaluating uh, someone in a number of different ways. He's very famous for having, you know, for issuing a, a couple of tests. Um, I think one was roughly an intelligence test and the other was a personality test in order to kind of assess your, your personality and your, and, and your intellect. And in terms of personality, I'm, you know, the way he explained it to us is that he didn't really know what he was looking for. But over the many years that he ran Tiger, um, all of us went through and took that personality test. And over time, I think they were able to match up and, and say, okay, these are the, the, the personality types that we've seen be successful in our system. And without having to know, you know, up front, you know, in a predictive way, who was going to work out. And so I was never privy, frankly, to analyzing that data or, or knowing exactly how it worked. But that was an interesting, uh, interesting way of going about it that was pretty, you know, scientific method. I think that, you know, as I said before, Julian was just a really, I think Tiger had a, a very strong culture there and, and he was uh, a, a very principled leader. And so I think all of us got uh, to go to a uh, school on kind of how to run a great hedge fund. And that, that some of that, those lessons, as I said, were invaluable, how you dealt with Wall Street and, um, and meaning the sell side uh, and, and sell side analysts and, and, and trading partners. And, and th those were all, you know, just lessons that we could learn. I think Julian did some really interesting things as well that, that I think, perhaps are uncommon in, in some either other industries or maybe even in the hedge fund industry. There was a real environment of competition there. And so everyone, um, all the analyst team there really wanted to outperform everyone else and uh, compete. And there was a, fr it was friendly competition and, uh, you know, maybe like some teammates, if you if you watch the recent documentary of, of Last Dance of with Michael Jordan, um, 
maybe he took it a little uh, far in his practices, <laughs> but, but there was a lot of good natured ribbing and, and, uh, and generally people tried to help each other out as well. So, you know, he, he was able to strike that balance of competition and coopetition amongst the investment staff. So those are, those are a few things that come to mind that I'd say made Tiger's model, human resource model, uh, unique and interesting to me. Excellent. And speaking of the apprenticeship model, I mean, so after you got your MBA at Stanford, you went to work for another legendary tech investor, Roger McNamee at Integral. What are some of the lessons you learned uh, working with Roger? Yeah, Roger, Roger's a fascinating guy that, you know, you know, from your time at Elevation. And um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, you know, that was, uh, I think, emblematic of Roger's personality and, and position in the industry. I remember when I was working at Tiger before business school, being at an analyst day for Intuit and, you know, was sitting there and there were 40 or so buy side and sell side analysts in the room. Maybe it was 50. And uh, Roger walked in maybe a few minutes late. Literally, they practically stopped the entire event, went over. Roger got hugs from several members of the Intuit team. And I just remember thinking, what the heck is it? Who is this guy? Like, how does he have this relationship that it seems like no one else, uh, the rest of us in the room were just, you know, bystanders almost. And he was seemingly a participant in uh, the, this industry. Now it ended up Roger had put money in into it when it was still a private company. So he had a very deep relationship with the team there. And uh, his model at Integral being a crossover fund of investing in private companies as well as public companies in the same uh, fund was extremely unique. And it was a difficult model, frankly, to, to uh, pull off. Um, but, you know, someone with Roger's personality, talent, and uh, relationships was able to do it. And, and, and marketing a fund that have a, had a five-year lockup on all of its money um, and invested in a mix of public and private securities. That was really unique at the time. It's still pretty unique today. I, I, we don't use that model, but, but, it, but it was a very unique model. So that would, that, you know, and Roger, if I, you know, boil it down, I'd say Roger, you know, once I did join him at following business school, you know, he made it very clear, look, I want you to be a participant in the industry, not an observer. So we went to a lot of uh, industry trade shows, and I think that was more rare, you know, in years past. I think it's gotten more common that people would do that, but um, we really tried to, to, to get to know the entrepreneurs personally and, and before, certainly the, well before they went public and hopefully uh, make an investment before they did. I think Roger, you know, as, as well, uh, you know, his, his philosophy was, similar to, to uh, Julian's on the, on the long side in terms of you wanted to, to, to really find that platform company that everyone else had to, you know, uh, work with and that, that, that had sort of a, perhaps a, a Switzerland-like position in, in the industry. And so that, you know, was, was something else that made, you know, that, that was, there was a commonality there between Roger and Julian and which made it sort of easy for me to transition over to integral. And then, you know, what, what Roger really uh, started 
teaching me, you know, I, I showed up day one, I'd never done a private investment. And he sort of showed me the ropes on how to do proper due diligence on a private company, which is quite different from public companies. I'd say in some ways, I think of public company investing uh, as more of a detective business where you're uh, like a private detective, you're trying to go around and, and, and build up a mosaic from uh, the opinions of many people, data uh, that's publicly available and put together this, you know, fuzzy picture and, and make judgments from sort of a, uh, incomplete view of the world. Whereas private investing brings more of the management team at an early stage, kind of judging them, judging the market opportunity before the market opportunity really happens, which is uh, a little different than the public market as well. And then, and there's ways to, there, there's techniques to doing uh, diligence calls with customers, suppliers, distributors, et cetera, that you know, we, we walked through together and he was a great mentor to me. And I learned a lot from the, the time that uh, we worked together. Yeah. I love that you shared that story about being a participant. I mean, when I got to Elevation, Roger kind of captured his investing strategy as, um, as full contact investing. And it's something that's always stuck with me. I mean, it's not only meeting the various players in the industry, but it's also just deeply using the products and, um, and getting very right. familiar with them and being an active participant. Um, and then, so you, the early stage venture experience that you got at Integral, how did that help you as an investor on the public side throughout your career? I mean, was it the relationships that you cultivated um, as those early stage companies grew up or, um, or were there other aspects that, um, that gave you a longer time horizon or just made you a better investor? Yeah. So, it's a, it's a lot of things. I mean, some of it's relationships, you know, that there, there's a sort of a set of people that tend to run private companies and they sometimes will last through the IPO, but they move on and they like that sort of mid stage. Um, we then tended not to invest in things that were early stage. That's a, that's the entrepreneurial crew. And, but you get to know some of those guys when they have a big success, they stick around for a while. And then the, Sometimes, uh, and in the public market, there are public market CEOs and CFOs that tend to move from opportunity to opportunity over a 20-year period and spend five years at a place. And so you, you may be looking at a new company, but with a CEO or CFO that you have experience with in the past and understand uh, how to uh, interpret the things that they, the, the guidance that they give you, how conservative they are. You know, and that's important in understanding kind of on the margin what the change is in a certain industry. Look, every there's also sort of um, understanding the, the long arc of different opportunities. And if you really think about it, you know, if you look back in time, the, the Newton, uh, Apple's Newton product was really kind of, in a way, the first smartphone. It didn't have, it wasn't a phone but it had a lot of those basic apps that a smartphone had. It failed, right? It wasn't the technology, you know, you couldn't get it to a cost where it was really useful, you know, given where semiconductors and battery technology were. So it was a little too clunky. It obviously didn't make, it didn't really communicate on the phone calls. I think it maybe had Apple talk on it. So, so if you were in a network environment and you, I imagine you have to plug it in because there's no Wi-Fi. So, um, and that, but if you look, you know, then you saw Palm Pilot, 
um, the, the first palm, you know, palm three and palm five, and then you saw kind of a palm trio, and then that morphed, uh, you know, the smartphone industry or idea morphed into RIM, and then uh, we moved eventually on to, on to Apple. And, and so if you, all the way along, you, you, you saw these patterns and the way, you know, what functionality people really wanted and needed, the battery life, you know, some of this sort of basic stuff on usability, and you saw it get better, 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 the market get bigger, bigger, bigger. And having that experience over a long period of time, uh, I think, you know, you get certain pattern recognition skills that really help you judge uh, the success of a company in a kind of right brain mentality as opposed to really boiling it down to a set of financial numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And now I want to transition to Lightstreet. And so I think it may have been um, in like the 2010 timeframe when you were just starting the firm and uh, we were having a quick conversation in the Elevation offices. And I think you relayed some advice that Roger may have given to you that there's a big difference between being an investor and being an entrepreneur. So on the business side of things, what have you learned um, both starting and then scaling Lightstreet over the past decade? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I channeled a lot of, uh, a lot of Julian, frankly, uh, and Roger, but, but, you know, in terms of running a hedge fund is different than the way Roger did it. And, you know, what I, I made a couple of early decisions that really, you know, set up kind of the path that we were on. I, I started light street at 40. That's, kind of the upper end of where people tend to start a hedge fund. And I started it at a time in 2010, we weren't that far from the financial crisis. Um, in addition, and it, you know, the hedge fund industry was, was in kind of a lull. And I really looked at it and thought there were some great, incredible opportunities on the long side. I thought there was talent flight from the hedge fund industry. Um, and that, you know, if you were a very smart person from, either undergrad or grad school, hedge funds had lost their shine. And uh, people were more enamored with the venture industry or private equity um, or going straight to a tech company. And so that, to me, looked like a, a great opportunity. And then I, you know, I had the benefit of having already spent a number of years in the industry and had this network of entrepreneurs and CEOs and CFOs that I'd backed when they were pri a private company as well as um, potential investors that were investors in uh, Light Street or Tiger. Um, and lastly, I had an incredible uh, set of relationships, thanks to Roger, John Powell, also an integral, and, uh, and, and the relationships they've built over the years with the venture community. So I made the decision to start Light Street without uh, going down the road of, of using seed capital. And seed capital in the hedge fund industry uh, is a little bit different than the way it works in a private company, in a private uh, operating uh, tech company. But effectively, you're selling a piece of equity to an investor, and then they're also putting capital into the fund itself, uh, usually at some sort of preferred, very preferred fees. And um, I looked at it and said, look, I've been at this for, you know, almost 20 years. I've got all these great relationships. I don't want I, it seemed crazy to me to sell equity before I had built any value. 
So I, you know, said, look, I'm going to do it the old fashioned way. I'm just going to take my own money, put up, you know, all the money that I, that I have liquid. I'm going to keep some on the side to pay for the first two or three years of operating uh, expenses. And I'll run that for six months. Then I'll take my results and show it to people because I'm more of a, I, 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 I like to think I'm more of a show versus a tell uh, kind of person. And, um, and then I'll see who wants to invest. And that, that's the playbook I ran. It turned out it worked really well. It took me probably an extra year or two longer than I thought it would to get the certain milestones. But at the end of the day, you know, we roughly doubled assets almost every year, but, you know, it was easier in the early couple, first couple of years. But at the end of the day, I owned 100% of the business and was able to use all of those points, uh, 100 points of uh, carry to as compensation to the people that worked at the fund as opposed to 20% of it going to another investor. And uh, we were tested a couple times. I mean, uh, we had a number of uh, former Tiger people that I had worked with directly that showed that asked uh, if they could seed the fund and take an ownership position. And I turned that, that them down and then I turned around, I turned, about a year or two into it, maybe it was three three years in, um, I had an offer from a very large hedge fund manager that was uh, willing to double our assets for um, redu very reduced fees. And while that was not a bad offer, I did not want to set the precedent that we would discount our fees ever. And so we've stuck to that other than adopting some small different series um, for certain situations, longer lockups, um, but nothing aggressive uh, in our view in terms of uh, discounting of fees. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. And I love that long-term kind of business building approach. I mean, how did you weigh the pros and cons um, of starting a hedge fund rather than just managing your own capital that you had accumulated almost in like a family office structure? I mean, because on the one hand, you're building all of the equity in the fund, as you alluded to. But on the other, you mentioned that you set aside some capital to pay for a couple of years of overhead um, to build out all of the infrastructure and the scale of the hedge fund. I mean, so how did you think about those puts and takes? Well, I mean, look, if you look at it, if any, any uh, dollar you get from an investor, you're, you're essentially getting 20 cents of the upside, you know, and so you're, you're, you're able to utilize your client's money to grow your own net worth. And they obviously pay you a management fee that, and, and you could take that and hire other smart people and running a hedge fund is not easy, right? I mean, if to do it correctly, you know, and, or at least the way, you know, I prefer to do it, you know, we need 25 good longs and, and at all times in our, in, at least. And on the short side, you know, we're, you need at least twice that in the way that we run our fund. And so that's 75 ideas. That, that'd be very difficult for one person. And that's the, in, in my view, the sweet spot of where you get the advantages of diversification, but not the disadvantages of being overly diversified. And so for me to do, and I'd never done it kind of on my own. I've never, I've never uh, really tried that. I mean, certainly I invest my, you know, when I was younger, I, I no longer have a personal account, but I used to invest a personal account. 
um, when I was at Tiger, that was, you know, that we, in our compliance setup, um, and in fact, they encouraged it because, you know, it was a chance for you as a young person to manage your own money and be a portfolio manager and see what it's like to allocate your own personal capital. And, 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 and unfortunately, in, in the compliance centric world that we live in today, that's largely uh, been wiped out. It, it's, it's seen as too big of a risk of, of uh, conflict of interest. So even if you do it in with all the checks and balances and sign offs, investors prefer you not to let your let your employees uh, invest their own money. Anyway, so it would be hard to do uh, on my own in the same way that we do it. Um, yeah. You know, I think about you know someday when I retire, will will I? How will I do it? Uh, will I hire a few folks to you know work in a, a family office kind of environment and. And that's what Julian has done with, as he has gone on in years. He has, you know, not only all his investments in different uh, tiger cubs and grand cubs, so to speak, um, but he uh, is still investing his own capital and his own ideas. And he's got a small team of analysts, uh, like a mini little tiger management. So I don't know. I don't know where I'll go eventually with it. But I know, I think that the, the best risk and return trade-off I can get, um, um, you, you know, I have a team of people and we're, we're utilizing those those management fees to not only pay those people, but also to buy uh, cutting edge research uh, and data that we then uh, process internally. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then do you have any advice to for other emerging managers or folks thinking of launching their own fund uh, in today's environment? Yeah, um, you know, I get asked this quite often and I, and I tend to have, have three or four of these conversations a year with someone that's considering launching a, a, a hedge fund, you know, nothing earth shattering. I mean, I think, you know, certainly, you know, get the best people around you that you can. I think the early on uh, important hire is a CFO um, that really can take all the, the business uh, back office stuff off your plate and you know that's that's important so that you can concentrate purely on investing although early on you're as as the pm you're you're raising capital and spending a lot of time doing that you know i never of course would tell someone what to do but and and, and all all these environments can be different in terms of appetite for hedge funds but um if i had it to do again i would i would uh, do it probably do it the same way in terms of growing organically with my own uh, starting with my own capital and then friends and family and work up from there. I think one of the side benefits of growing slowly in the early days um, is that you don't need to hire a complete team. If you start out with 200 million or 400 million on day one, um, you're sort of starting on third base. So you need like someone to be on third base, second base, first base, and you're in the batter's box. So you need four people. Whereas if you start at kind of uh, square one or the first inning to, to stretch the analogy, you know, nobody else is on base, you know, and you, you, as I said, you maybe got the CFO coach on the, that down on the first base uh, line. So, you know, that it puts less pressure on you to hire people, the, the, a players and hiring a players is hard and it takes time. And so I think one of the things that's been successful for us is that 
the way we've grown the fund year after year, we've averaged at adding one analyst a year. And, um, and that's been uh, an incredible luxury in a way to say, okay, we, and we don't plan, we don't plan it to happen this way, but it sort of organically has happened this way. But hiring, just having to hire one great financial analyst a year is not a huge pressure on a team. And the bigger you get, the, you know, you start building up experience and doing it better. And, and you're, you're certainly going to make some mistakes here and there. Um, but, that, but that's given us a very stable, solid team over the years. Uh, and I think that's a real luxury. Yeah, absolutely. And how would you characterize your strategy at Light Street? This is a fascinating question to me because if you boil it down to Julian's uh, rules, you know, you just find the greatest companies and you invest, you buy them and, and hopefully hold them as long as it's, you know, makes sense. And you short, I mentioned I altered it and shorting, not just the worst companies, but companies that are in tough situations. And so I don't try to put too much, build too much up on a strategy. I mean, we want to, you know, look for those innovative companies. We want to do the deep diligence on them. We want to find them when they're private and get to know them, get to know their competitors, uh, get to know the investors in those private companies so that we can really understand why a technology is being adopted or not being adopted and what different flavor might be adopted and why. And that gives you a real long-term advantage if you understand that. Then you can start thinking about business model because there's no business model if you, if, if you don't have a lot of, if you, don't, if you can't get a bunch of customers. You know, I think there's a misperception in, in the popular press, let's say, around, and, you know, I think just general, you know, public viewpoint that technology is this super fast-moving industry. The reality is that these, these it takes years and years for a company to, from square one, to develop a technology, prove it to a point where people want to buy it, and then work through the different uh, strategies for selling it or distributing it, depending on the industry that you're in. You know, it's actually, a, in some ways, kind of a slow-moving industry if you start earlier, if you're not just sitting there waiting for the uh, IPO prospectus to show up on your desk. So that's you know, I think that's slow. You know, you hear this analogy of guys that go into the NFL and they say, my gosh, the game moves so quickly. If you start your work earlier, the game doesn't move that quickly. And yeah. you understand, you know, the setup before, you know, the company shows up in the public market. You know, I think that's, that's part of the strategy. I think, you know, we, we also are pretty global in the way we look at uh, the opportunities and, you know, you learn a lot from going around the globe and looking at how companies in different countries have attacked a market. And sometimes they'll make a decision because of the structure of their the culture or the way uh, a certain industry's business gets done. Sometimes, you know, they don't have the resources to solve the problem in a way that they might solve it in the U.S. or another developed country. And, but, but you get the benefit of seeing kind of different business models at work, trying to make sense of why they chose that. You can ask them directly, of course. And, you know, and why, why the business evolves in a certain way. And sometimes comp uh, in, a, in a particular category, let's take food delivery, you know. Uh, Just Eat and, and Delivery Hero went, went public far before food delivery companies 
elsewhere on the globe went public. Most of them were still private. And so we were in contact with the two public companies as well as, well as a bunch of private ones. And really understand, I think we gained an understanding of the difference in that case in between the marketplace model and the full service, you know, where the, where the aggregator, so to speak, the food delivery company actually did the delivery themselves and, and what, what, what the trade-offs were in terms of P&L and how, how quickly they could grow. And, and, you know, when you do that, um, you also, I, I obviously couldn't invest in the South Korean Wuwa brothers food delivery service, but I could make this investment over here in, in, in Germany or in, uh, in England. So, you know, that's the benefit of working globally. And so we, we find that makes us uh, a lot smarter and uh, makes us better investors. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that analogy of the, uh, the speed of the NFL game. Uh, I'm going to think a lot more about that going forward. But you mentioned earlier, like kind of the evolution of mobile devices. I mean, what are some of the other themes or long-term trends um, you're investing behind today? Sure. So when we started, the, you know, this, this, this is uh, emblematic of the kind of slow moving nature in, in our view of technology. We started, when I started the fund in 2010, the four things we talked about were mobile, social, cloud, and e-commerce. Um, mo- we don't really talk about mobile anymore, and not because it didn't work. It almost worked too well, and because the average website now, 70% of their traffic or more is, is from mobile. So mobile became the entire industry or the major- vast majority of the industry and so on, on, for consumer internet. So that, and now business internet as well, you know, of course. And so that, that, but that trend, you know, Roger used to, back when they, he started uh, Integral in, in the uh, early 90s, he was talking about mobility, interactivity, um, you know, some of these themes that, uh, you know, connectivity, so networking, they, they were some of the same similar words. They meant something different then. And I gave you the example earlier about how we moved from kind of the organizer market to the smartphone market. But no, but if you look at it on a continuum, you really realize kind of it was the same industry. So today, you know, the four, we, we've added the sharing economy to uh, the, the, the opportunity set. That is now kind of the fourth. And there's no magic about having four. Uh, having three is fine. Having five is fine. You don't want too many, obviously. But, you know, the other, so we're still with, uh, social media, cloud computing, e-commerce, and now the sharing economy. And there's, you know, we, we actually, you know, we have in our presentation where we show to investors kind of where we think we are in the opportunity set, you know, in terms of pen- penetration. E-commerce is a pretty easy one to measure, right? And the U.S., uh, it's about 16% penetrated uh, until the last three months. It's, it's suddenly jumped to 27% uh, because of COVID. The big question now, of course, is does it go back um, or how far back does it go? Because people have tried different, uh, you know, my parents have tried grocery delivery. They never would have tried it if they hadn't been forced to do it. And, um, you know, will people continue to do that? Well, some will, some won't. But and, you know, that's where, you know, having uh, real time data, you know, helps and sort of figuring out, OK, here's here's what the traje- trajectory of that usage looks like. So. Social media, we still see continuing to take, of course, people's time, you know, their, their eyeballs, and, and it's become a very good place to, um, 
to promote uh, content. So streaming, whether it's streaming content or streaming services, and people, people get a lot of their news from Facebook and Twitter. Um, there's a lot of consternation around what that means for, you know, fake news and, and, and the legitimacy of news um, that's shared, but it's reality, right? That's where people are getting a, a good portion of their news. And, and so I think we still have a long way to go where, and I think that the social media companies are going to continue to be very, very powerful going forward. And you've seen sort of over, you know, over a long arc of time, a massive failures of, of editor led uh, publishing. And it continues to be on just a terrible decline over a long period of time. Um, and I don't, I don't see that changing We're, we have, now we have fewer and fewer, you know, legitimate operations, which eventually those companies have to be healthy or else it would completely disappear, which I don't think is going to happen. Cloud computing, we're probably a third of the way uh, through that, that uh, transition. And the COVID crisis has um, shown the way effectively to, uh, to, to the C-level C suite that inherent in cloud computing comes with it um, remote access and uh, built in natively and uh, disaster recovery. And the and the ability to work from home or anywhere, frankly, you know, and and be and have a very flexible workforce, and that that's always been there. But now I think people are really appreciating that the, those uh, those characteristics. And so uh, I'm as bullish as ever on the cloud computing uh, opportunity set. And you're going to see big companies, you know, decommissioning, continuing to decommission. Uh, data centers probably at a higher rate than than we've than we've seen before. E-commerce we talked about it's it, you know the penetration is 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 you know has risen dramatically in the short term, but on the long arc of that opportunity is is amazing, and uh, and then the sharing economy is probably the most dynamic of of all of these. It's the newest um, in terms of uh, you know it, and it gathered a lot of capital as well very quickly over the last five years, you know, the idea that you're taking a smartphone and you're taking uh, labor and you're taking usually some sort of fixed asset and you're bringing those three things together. So a, a very flexible workforce, an asset and, and, and the mobile technology, you bring those things together and you're effectively turning, you know, what used to be uh, things that you had where you had to deploy capital in kind of an inefficient way, buy a car so you could use it once a week, maybe to drive out of uh, an urban city to go to your summer house or something. Um, in that example, and and sure you could rent, uh, but rent car rental was not the same as 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 uh, ride sharing is has not as convenient. So it's it's just been an amazing uh, growth, and you're taking these industries like you know vacation rentals and uh you know office sharing we can throw that one in there and uh you know driving transportation uh and food in terms of food delivery and you look at that and these are massive massive uh industries that are now being digitized 
in a way that, you know, would have been hard to imagine, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And from a consumer perspective, I think it was Matt Kohler who said the smartphone in that environment becomes kind of like a remote control for real life. Yeah. Um, so very powerful. I mean, you mentioned uh, real-time data sources. Do you use any type of data science or quant strategies in the investing process, either to source or, uh, or size investments? Yeah, so we, we're not using any um, quantitative data to drive trading. Um, in, in, but we do use uh, quantitative data, survey data um, to inform our analysts of what's going on in a more real-time way than waiting for companies to report their quarter. And it can be an early warning system to exit a position. It can help you put numbers around uh, a thesis that you have uh, that you might have had before you saw the numbers, but then you get the data and you go, okay, now I can model this better and I better understand kind of where we were, where we are, where we're going to be. So the data, the, the, the alternative data does not usually create ideas for us, um, but it helps us size them better. It helps us do the analysis better and it might help us get out of them uh, on a timely basis. The key, you know, a couple, I'll give you some examples of, of this data. You know, we, and a lot of this is widely available and other hedge funds uh, uh, use it as well. So it's, it's you know, we're not doing, doing something that no one's doing, you know, with everything that we do in our data science group. But we're looking at, um, you know, credit card spending data. We're looking at um, web usage data, mobile usage uh, data. And tra we can look at traffic or industry level data. We do our own internal custom surveys of usually customers, but also can be suppliers or, or other participants in an industry. The most creative thing we ever did was uh, contract and fly a drone over the Tesla factory to count cars as the Model 3 was ramping up. And um, we, we, we hired a licensed, FCC licensed uh, drone pilot um, so that we had, you know, we're legally operating and he was flying over and taking pictures of the parking lot uh, two to three times a day. And then from that, we were able to estimate how many cars had been produced based on where they moved them, you know, where, where they, how they loaded up the lot and then loaded up loaded the cars onto the tractor trailers the following day so it was that that was probably the the coolest thing that we ever done in that group and 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 the guys in the data science group thought i was an absolute crazy man when i told them that what i wanted to do but it's the it was at the time it was the only factory in the world that tesla had where they actually assembled the end product and so you could in theory have pretty perfect information and as long as we didn't fly over their property, um, you know, we, of course, researched all this. It was, it was completely legal. Um, so that's fantastic. I love it. That's yeah. like a scene right out of billions. Yeah. And at one point they called the cops, uh, the, the Tesla security called the cops on our guy and the cops uh, came and, 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 and questioned him and the Tesla guys drove up there and he's like, Hey, here's my license, et cetera. So there was no, 
there was no issue because we, we had completely done our research. Yep. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, but one of the other things I love about your approach is being able to balance kind of the optimistic view that Silicon Valley has with the skepticism of Wall Street. Um, can you talk more about that and how it helps you as an investor? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, it, it is an interesting uh, dichotomy because, you know, you'll see the, the culture of Silicon Valley is really about, you know, building companies and, and, and coming together. And, the, and if you talk to a venture capitalist that's invested in a company, um, they don't use the pronoun they when referring to the company. They use the pronoun, pronoun we. And now they are on the board of directors um, in a lot of cases. But even if you're not on the board of directors and you're private investors, most of the time they'll say the word we. And, and, and entrepreneurs get really ticked off if you ask too many skeptical questions in a first or second meeting uh, before you've established a real rapport in Silicon Valley. And, and the, the common refrain is, well, they just don't get it. They don't, they don't get our vision. And so it is an interesting world. And, and, and I'd say if you compare that to Wall Street where you know, you're paid to be a skeptic, you're expected to be a skeptic. And, you know, and it's, it, it can be uncomfortable for the, for the management teams, but that's the culture of public market uh, investment question and answer sessions that occur at conferences or on conference calls, et cetera. So they are two different, uh, two different cultures that we're sort of trying to take the best of both worlds and, and cross compare the information that we're getting. And so as long as you understand kind of who you're talking to um, and how those people, you know, and there's people at different points on the spectrum from those two uh, competing uh, universe, but yeah, and understanding, you know, who they are and what their approach is. And there are some venture capitalists that, are total Kool-Aid drinkers, and they would never say anything that can be interpreted negatively about their company. And there are others that, if you have a long-term relationship with them, and these, this is, of course, speaking about private companies, there's no inside information here, but they will admit, hey, yeah, we've probably not done that exactly right. Here's what we're doing to correct it, you know, get our company back on track, and this is why this other company has done better, but we think it's a temporary, whatever. You know, we, I can go expand the example more and more, but learning to read those two uh, groups is extremely important uh, to, you know, finding your version of the truth. Um, and, you know, as I said, it's, a you know, investing in public stocks is, a, is kind of a detective business. And then, you know, of course, sentiment changes the price um, in a real time basis. Uh, and that you don't have that experience, except it's episodic, uh, that experience in the private universe. And in certain parts of the cycle, they, all the prices only go up, um, it seems. And so that, um, that becomes accepted. And, you know, the thought that your company didn't build value over the last year or two between financings, you know, it's thought of as ridiculous. And so it's a very, it's a pretty different, two, it's two different worlds and we're trying to bridge that gap uh, with our knowledge set and relationships.
Yeah, no, I love it. And um, as I think about my investing strategy, I mean, that's the balance and the equilibrium that I want to, um, that I want to walk. It's like being a value investor on one hand and making sure um, disciplined on price, but then also having the optimistic what can go right in a growth scenario perspective as well. But so shifting the discussion a little bit, I want to start going through some of the names in your portfolio to help kind of frame your strategy and your approach. Um, maybe we can start with Wayfair. I mean, so it's a company you've owned in the past, and then I believe you sold it, and then you just kind of reestablished a position maybe during the depths of COVID. I mean, can you summarize that, um, that thesis and the story there? Yeah. So, yeah, this is an interesting one. I mean, I might not... I, when I was in an undergrad at University of Virginia, we had a big project in senior year or fourth year at UVA. And, um, you know, the industry that my group looked at was the furniture industry. And we went down uh, and had discussions with Bassett Furniture and, and uh, a couple other uh, furniture companies whose names I can't remember now. But um, Lazy Boy was the one, but a couple of the other uh, ones that sold through more independent uh, stores. So I had a little bit of knowledge about the industry going way back. And, um, you know, as the e-commerce industry kept expanding and moving into different verticals, it, it was, it was, uh, it was obvious which verticals worked really well. And, and for the most part, Jeff Bezos is pretty good at, at, at figuring that out. Smart guy with a, with a nice head start. Furniture was not an obvious industry. The way the furniture industry works from a supply chain point of view, manufacturing, they build up the orders and they, 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 so that they have enough that, that they can get economies of scale manufacturing and they manufacture a lot at the same time. And so the same factory can make a very large um, selection of SKUs, um, not so efficiently unless they batch, do, batch up the orders. And so that's why historically when you went to a furniture store, if they didn't have it on the floor, it, you know, it seemed to always take 12 to 16 weeks for your nice piece of furniture to show up. And that's, that's not so compatible with the, the way every other industry has, you know, been trending over time. And, and the winners in that industry got better, you know, William Sonoma, for instance, you know, they got, they, they started to solve some of those problems and keep the selection tight. Um, and this, the, the number of combinations of uh, options tighter. And so, Wayfair really went into an industry that wasn't set up to be e-commerce driven industry and started figuring out how to help transition that, uh, that industry away, away from the old way of doing things. And that was very appealing to us because it was our view that um, Amazon would have a hard time. It didn't look like, it didn't have you know to to do a good job in the furniture industry um it wasn't about pick pack and shipping efficiently in a amazon uh distribution center it was more about how you worked with with the supply chain and in some ways if you look at it you know think about amazon's failed at at you know a number entering a number of categories for instance one category they tried to enter twice was travel and you know if you and if you think about how Expedia and Priceline do business, well, they're not pick pack and shipping goods, which you know, in this part of why Amazon you know wasn't a natural um, connection for them, 
But what those two companies did extremely well globally was work with the supply chain, you know, figure out how they could add value to the, to the owners of the hotel. So, you know, and originally it was uh, uh, not, not, you know, first started agency model that then they went to taking ownership of a certain percentage of rooms and selling them and controlling price. And it started to shift it back to a, to, to a mixed model. And, and they just saw, they went and they figured out how, what, what would appeal to that supply chain. And Amazon failed twice trying to end up travel. So we didn't, I think when we bought into Wayfair, the bears were all like, well, Amazon's going to kill them because it's e-commerce. But then we were like, nah, they're not going to win at everything. Now, Amazon's the number one competitor. So I'm not saying, uh, so in reality, they've done all right. But, they're, but they skew to lower, I think, lower quality goods than Wayfair does at Wayfair figure out how to you know move up the up the quality uh, chain so you know we did incredible uh, work there uh, you know in terms of talking to some of the long-term venture investors in that company understanding kind of the strengths of the management team we you know I knew the CFO there from his previous stint at Gartner Group um, which was a Silver Lake deal that I had been lightly involved in but i'd gotten to know him back then so we we knew the cfo well which was helpful in terms of uh kind of getting access as a relatively small fund and uh being able to have conversations when we needed to have them and and, and really understand their business and the more we looked at it we you know we just thought their ability to execute was was going to be great it's turned out to be a tough company uh you know it's we we've certainly made money in it at different times but it, it's not an easy industry to, to solve because of the, the complexities uh, of not only manufacturing, but also delivery. Uh, there's quite often damages, uh, damage done to goods, and you're dealing with third-party logistics uh, firms that are making the deliveries, white glove uh, logistics firms. So it's a complex business to run, but I think ultimately the, the size of the furniture industry is very large, and, um, and we just... We, you know, and they, they've done a good job. And so recently, as you alluded to, the stock went from 100 to 20 um, in a relatively short period of time. And uh, we looked at our data on uh, credit card spending and we called up the company and, and uh, talked to them about, you know, what, their, uh, what they were seeing in the industry we made a decision to go long the, the, the stock and, and it rocketed back, you know, and, and uh, it's been a, it was a very good position for us over the last couple of months. One of the most dramatic recoveries that I've ever seen in my entire lifetime, you know, so that was pretty fascinating to, to, to see. Yeah, and you alluded to um, uh, the bear case, and it's obviously a name that has had high short interest for a lot of the their life as a public company. I mean, how does that dynamic with a company that you're long with high short interest? How does that play into your framework at all, if if any? We tend not to worry about it. I mean, uh, in turn, you know, I think there's a lot. I think a lot of investors spend way too too much time uh, looking at. 13 F's, which is, we'll show you who owns a company and trying to read in, Oh, this is a good idea or not. I good a good idea based on at, you know, at the very least 60 day old data in terms of, you know, who owned it. 
um, and, and probably longer than that unless you're at the 15th of the second month of a quarter. And, you know, you have to do your own work. You have to come up, you know, you have to use your own resources, come up with your own conclusions. And so when there's high short interest, it's, it's, it's very similar to, you know, worrying about who owns a stock and how many hedge funds and how many, and I don't really believe in this concept of crowding. We have something that measures crowding. It's called a multiple. So multiples measure crowding because it's, a, it's an open outcry market. If, if more people want to own it, drives the price up, drives the multiple up. Crowding is this concept that crowding is only meaningful if all investors in a certain category uh, behave the same. And, and, and you can come to your own conclusions on that, but, but it's not something we focus on. We, we think that, that, that there's way too much you know, time and too much ink spilled with this concept of crowding. Yeah, I mean, that original thought and original perspective is, I think, one of the reasons you've been so successful. But um, it's also such a good segue to the next company I want to talk about, which is CrowdStrike. I mean, so they provide kind of a, a modern suite of endpoint protection, uh, cybersecurity, and obviously taking a lot of share from the likes of Symantec and McAfee. So really well-positioned company, but I want to focus on, on the multiple, as you, uh, as you said. Um, so I, I pulled up the cap IQ chart and I think it's been in kind of like the 15 to 20 times plus forward revenue multiple since it's been yep. public. How like these high multiple stocks are one area where I just have a hard time wrapping my head around and I, I want to start having more of an open mind instead of just immediately crossing them off the list. So how do you yep. think about valuation there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a great question. I, I too get, uh, get worried about the same thing. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of CrowdStrike, the, the uh, data security industry, we don't break it out as like a separate theme. We think of it as a, as a segment of cloud. And if all computing is going to be cloud computing in the very long term, you know, we want to position ourselves in own uh, security companies that are strong in the cloud. And I think if you do your fundamental work, you know, you'll come to the conclusion that it's a relative, it's a smaller than you would expect list of companies that have scale that were born, effectively born in the cloud. They were doing cloud security from day one. And CrowdStrike, there were a number of competitors that have been bought. We were actually long a company called Carbon Black, which um, was a company that was transitioning from a non-cloud business or an on-prem business to a cloud model. And we, uh, we owned that in 2019, and I'm, I'm not sure if we owned it in 2018 as well, but we made the bet that, look, cloud is going to win. These guys have great technology. We certainly did our diligence in the marketplace in terms of figuring out who had you know, the best product and who had uh, sales forces that could, could, uh, could execute well. And the company was pretty cheap because they were going through this transition and some investors didn't want to put up with that, those risks. That company got sold to uh, VMware and uh, that served to further consolidate uh, effectively the, the number of players. Um, and VMware uh, started transitioning Carbon Black onto their platform. So that kind of hurt them for a year. And CrowdStrike was uh, the pure play that didn't have any legacy business. And, but we couldn't make sense of the valuation either. 
And then we finally got an opportunity. It sold off in the fall and we got an opportunity to buy it at, uh, I traded down from a hundred, uh, to sub 50 and the multiple went from crazy to maybe not so crazy. Um, and the, and the, and yeah, you asked a great question. I think the interesting thing is, is multiples are sort of, uh, they're a function of course of, uh, of quality of the business, potential profitability and rate of growth. And, um, so what by quality, I'm thinking, sustainability of the growth rate and the, and the quality of the, the people that work there. So, you know, this is a company that's, it's, it's not growing uh, 35% or 50%. It's growing a hundred percent or high nineties, mid nineties, you know, and it's going to decay growth rate will decay. And in these very, very high growth stocks, you, if you, have the confidence that it can continue at a you know at a at a at a hundred let's say one year ninety percent the next year maybe eighty percent the next year versus the sell side will tend to say okay it's going to grow a hundred this year then fifty then thirty and and there that's just it, they have a hard time believing or writing down on paper uh, numbers that are rare but you know rare uh companies and rare do exist right and here here so the question you have to ask yourself is how great is their technology versus the competitors who are the competitors and are they getting weaker or stronger and then you know what how big is the market so in this case this is a massive market their technology's terrific based on the work that we did and their competitors include companies like McAfee and Symantec, as well as some other smaller ones that, you know, and, and McAfee and Symantec have been bought and sold by private equity several times. They're being effectively run for profitability. They're not reinvesting in R&D. They're not, their, their ability to, to leap over that chasm from on-prem to cloud is limited by some of the technology legacy infrastructure that they have and business model uh, the way they charge their customers. And so, you know, it just looked like a great opportunity to us if you mo can model out several years and look at it on 2025 revenue or, or earnings, you know, depending on your views on how quickly they, they, they'll uh, go to profitability. Yeah. And so with that lens, you know, you're able to, to buy in this case, or we did, um, uh, an expensive stock and, and, and it wasn't without risk, but, but it worked out really well for us. Now we, we trimmed it, um, our position in it quite a bit over, over the last three months because it has rallied back so hard. Yeah. I love that framework. I mean, so is it fair to characterize it? Um, one, like the multiple head corrected, which gave you the opportunity to purchase it at not so crazy levels. Um, and then two, just the absolute market opportunity in relation to the uh, current market cap of the company. And then, and three, um, just the sustainability of the growth rate over a longer time period than what's traditionally modeled. Yeah. I mean, all those things come into it. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, the, the other company that was very similar to this that we did well in was LinkedIn. And 
our, you know, we had the history of knowing that the company crushed its numbers consistently as a private company and they always guided kind of low. And so it was very natural for Wall Street to have pretty low expectations uh, for, for LinkedIn out of the gate. And, and, and that de growth decay curve looked, you know, similar to the one I mentioned to you. And so, you know, if you, if you think it's a, a big market and a great product and difficult for competitors to compete, uh, you can look out five years. And, you know, that ability to look out further than, than most investors are willing to, you can uh, capture excess return. Yeah. And then the other thing I've been impressed with is your ability to uh, change your mind and trade in and out of positions. I mean, you mentioned um, you've done that successfully with Wayfair in the past. You mentioned you're trimming CrowdStrike. So how do you think about sell discipline? I mean, especially because there are some companies where the right answer is just to never sell. I mean, so uh, Amazon or Shopify, like they're the recent examples that come to mind. But how do you think through those dynamics? Uh, that's the black art, um, which I, I don't think there's anyone that is great at it. Um, because I think you pointed out, you know, it, the, the, the range of outcomes is so massive. So, you know, look, we, we try to marry kind of our view of the industry and the mastery of the, of the projections with, you know, what risk we're willing to underwrite. And we just make our best guess. Um, or our best analysis that we can on pretty fuzzy information, frankly. And, you know, it, it, it will resolve at times in making big mistakes. You know, I think if you really think about it, the biggest investment mistakes you'll ever make are selling, right? And, and you sell something that, you know, goes up 5x. That's way more costly than, oh, well, it went down 20%. And so when you're trying to avoid a 20% decline, you've got to think about that. You know, if, 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 if you think, gosh, I want to, I still want to own this in three or five years because it's such an incredible opportunity. So you got to weigh that out. I think the, 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 the other thing that we're, the, that you're balancing when you have a, a, a portfolio and you have a lot of resources on a relative basis as a, as a, you know, hedge fund is that you've got other ideas, you know, other newer ideas that, that um, you can you can sometimes boil it down and say, okay, on a relative basis, let's you know I think this is one of the weaker ideas in our portfolio. Let's think of that versus this new idea, and why why should I invest in the new idea and take money away from the old idea? And that can sometimes help you you know bring some clarity. But you know certainly you're going to make a million mistakes. I mean to be good at this business, you only have to be right 60% of the time, right, or 55% of the time, and and that requires not to, you know you to size those opportunities correctly right so there's this mix between percentage of times you're right and how you size it if you know you know the riskier position so you look you've got to be kind of dynamic we we take all of our expectations from our analysts we put it into um some internal software that we built and uh on a just sort of purely numerical basis um, I can sort of see based on all of these many imperfect assumptions, in theory, what the portfolio should look like. And I, I apply a level of judgment uh, across all those many, many uh, expectations, and we come up with the portfolio we actually own. And it's, you know, 
you're going to make a million mistakes. But but if you uh, you know if you're if you if you're disciplined and you balance out the risk and reward, um, ultimately you should be able to beat the market. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then one other area I want to pick your brain on, um, because I just have a difficult time navigating it as an investor, are categories where there's a huge addressable market, but multiple competitors and a ton of capital available in the industry. I mean, so you mentioned earlier the food delivery and ride sharing guys that kind of come to mind. And I'm sure you saw the blog post a few weeks ago about the pizza arbitrage opportunity on DoorDash. And so it's, only, it's like a game where you're forced to play as a competitor to maintain or capture market share. But how do you think through, you, like you may be forced also to invest in marketing dollars that, are, that have a negative ROI associated with them. And so how do you think through those dynamics and like what will profitability ultimately be and how long and how much capital burned to get there? The answer is you don't know, right? You know, I think you're talking mostly about businesses that are more should be more natural monopolies right mm-hmm. where you really can't have their survive or natural oligopolies where it's it's very difficult for there to be more than a handful of of competitors and those those businesses are attractive because in the long term you you probably have one big winner and one you know okay winner um, and everybody else loses and but it's and it's very expensive to get to that end point but for the company that gets there first effectively it, it's also you can also be richly rewarded and you know we're mostly public investors we do some late stage private investing too and um it's a combination of uh luck in terms of the ability for your competitors to gather capital and i think in the last several years capital has been easier to come by so the investment, the size of those investments got very, very, very large for, for, uh, for ride sharing and food delivery. So, you know, and you can't predict rational behavior necessarily or what people can rationalize as rational behavior. So it's, so it's pretty darn tricky, but uh, you know, as, as a investor in this, in let's say the ride sharing space, you know, it's pretty easy to see who is in first place on a pure market cap point of view, you know, you, you don't know precisely how much money you might lose getting to the point where you're, that company is the ultimate winner. But if you're right about the ultimate winner, as the consolidation starts to happen, if you're in front of that or understand, or understand those dynamics, you know, you can, you can, uh, you can make money and you can make a lot of money, but it, it could be painful for a long time too. You know, the most recent example, Get after COVID came and it was became pretty clear that that COVID was really good for food delivery. Um, we knew it was incredible for grocery delivery, but it also was very good for food delivery from restaurants. And um, well, you know, we we've been expecting the U.S. market to consolidate down to two players in food delivery. Um, there are four today: DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub. And Postmates. Postmates is mostly a regional player where they have strength in Los Angeles, um, but it's not a na- really a national uh, player. It's our view that that will be the last to be consolidated as a result. DoorDash, you know, we viewed that as they're the best executing probably of all of the um, companies, public or private, 
and you know, and therefore the most attractive to consolidate um, if you are Grubhub or Uber. It also is our view that given how much money's been raised um, over time, DoorDash probably doesn't want to be bought. They would probably rather go public and be the long-term number one player without you know, being part of another company. And so as given the strength of the underlying business when after COVID came out, it, you know, we sort of looked at it and said, you know, at this point, our, it's our best guess that, um, or game theory, from a game theory perspective, that DoorDash won't want to be consolidated. So what's the next, next most likely thing to happen is that Uber, which is public, will race ahead to buy Grub, which is also public, before DoorDash goes public. Because if DoorDash goes public, then they have a public currency uh, and they can go try to buy Grub, which is the next largest player after Uber. And so we took a position in, in Grubhub, you know, it, with the part of the thesis of owning it being that we think, you know, from a game theory perspective that Uber is likely to buy it. Turned out Uber made an offer. The stock has gone up since we bought it. The deal has not been consummated uh, yet and uh, and may never be. We'll, we'll, we don't know. But that's a, a example of how to invest in a sector like this, you know, and make some money. Absolutely. That's super helpful. And I love that game theory aspect of the consolidation. But in, so in the last few minutes we have here, I just want to shift to a totally different topic, which is parenting. Um, so what have you learned being a father the past uh, 15, 16 years? Oh, I, I'd like to think I've learned something. Um, <laughs> it's mostly been a, a learning on the job, I guess, and, you know, chasing around and, and, and trying to figure it out as we go along. You know, I love spending time with my kids. I think the thing that that I've really enjoyed uh, as a dad has been kind of sharing the things that I like to do uh, with them as long as they like to do them. And, um, you know, with my boys, you know, we spend a lot of time, uh, we all love sports and uh, spend a lot of time uh, going to different sporting events. And, uh, you know, I made the decision a long time ago that, you know, I live in the Bay area now. I've, been, I've lived in the Bay Area longer than I lived, lived anywhere else. I'm just going to be a fan of all the Bay Area teams. I'm not going to stick to the team that I would rooted for as a kid. And so my kids and I share this, you know, passion for the 49ers, the, the Giants, the Sharks, and the Warriors. And so we just have, have had amazing experiences uh, together following our teams, you know, going to an away game, uh, road trip you know, maybe once a year. And it's really, you know, created an incredible bond with them. Uh, they're also golfers, uh, thanks to my father-in-law really getting them into the sport. And uh, they, they, they really brought me into golfing. Uh, you know, I played a little bit in high school and college just for fun with friends and was never particularly good at it. And since my kids have, have gotten more and more serious in, in playing golf, I've, I've had to play with them or not had to, but I've enjoyed playing with them. And, and my oldest son is now 16 is on his high school golf team and he is my golf coach. Uh, he teaches me now. So, you know, I think that, you know, it's just the more time you spend with them, the better, you know, them, the more, you, the more 
common areas of interest you can find, the stronger those bonds are going to be. And we, we just had a tremendous time. Uh, my daughter plays golf. We do play golf with uh, her as well. And, and, and it's just, it's awesome. Oh man, I love it. Uh, that is so cool. And so how do you try to balance like giving them opportunities and also those unique experiences of like the, the away games of the teams they're fans of on the one hand, but also teaching them the value of hard work and grit as well. Yeah. Well, that's tricky. Um, you know, <laughs> it, you know, we are, we're all a product of our upbringing and our environment. You know, we, we try, we assign them chores. We, give them responsibilities. We, you know, try to facilitate opportunities for them to be self-starters and to, to do things on limited resources and, um, you know, encourage that kind of, those kinds of uh, adventures. And, uh, and so that, you know, that's the best we can do. I mean, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, well, mostly fortunately, but um, we live in a very, you know, in a terrific uh, place. Funny enough, though, not funny, but, you know, interesting enough, uh, you know, very close by to Palo Alto, there are, um, there are places that aren't so fortunate, like East Palo Alto, which is literally, you know, less than a mile from my house. And um, so there are opportunities for them to, and us, uh, to volunteer, um, get involved in things like the Boys and Girls Club, uh, uh, you know, in, over in East Palo Alto and, and, and in the and give back to the Ravenswood School District, which is just a little bit north of, of uh, East Palo Alto. And so, you know, there's chances to, for us to invest in our community that are really close by. And, and, and we do that as a family. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a way to keep, keep them grounded. But you know, it's unavoidable, unfortunately, that you can't recreate. I can't necessarily recreate the childhood I had for them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in terms of uh, some of the experiences, but we'll do We do our best. Absolutely. And that's a great place to, uh, to leave it. Uh, Glenn, this was so much fun, man. I learned a ton from you. I always do. So thank you so much for all the time. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it. And uh, hope to see you soon. Carolina story. Well, thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon with some new episodes in the weeks ahead. If you have any feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at svafier or on LinkedIn. Cheers. <laughs>